This is the May JL 150 Podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Mary White, Professor of Anthropology at Boston University. Among Dr. White's many publications is Coffee Life in Japan, published by the University of California Press in 2012. Dr. White, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, it's lovely to be here. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, you've published so widely on Japanese anthropology, but in particular on two things, coffee and food. But we might not necessarily associate Japan with coffee, right? So often we think of Japan as a tea country. So can you talk about what is the position of coffee in Japan and give us a little bit of that background of how Japan comes to be a coffee country? Absolutely. Well, actually, yes. When I raised this subject of coffee in Japan, everyone always says, but don't they drink green tea? And, you know, then that's my opening. I kind of love that. And it is absolutely true that Japan was well steeped in coffee well before American intercessions like Starbucks. I mean, a good hundred years before. So we're looking at what happens when a substance or a commodity comes to Japan, it always becomes something other than what it started. So coffee actually was in Japan with Portuguese missionaries and traders in the 15 and 1600s and with the Dutch traders at Deshima and Nagasaki in the 17th century and on. What was interesting about that is that when coffee first came to Japan, it was seen as a medicinal aid to promote sleep. Some of the clients of the prostitutes of Nagasaki, who were Dutch, they gave the uh, substance to the prostitutes as a something to stay alert so that their clients wouldn't cheat them. So it worked both ways. It seemed like a soporific and a, a stimulant at the same time. The Dutch also brought siphon coffee to Japan, that glass vacuum container that creates coffee in a very dramatic way. And it flourished in Japan. The whole idea of siphon coffee is still alive and well in some rather old school coffee shops. And even today's you know, biggest technology creator for coffee, Hario Company, makes a fantastic space age siphon machine, which is often used even in London in third wave coffee shops. So there's some interesting sidelines that came about. But the actual public social drinking of coffee didn't really take off until the Meiji period. And in the Meiji period, the first dedicated coffee house was created. There's quite a story connected with that first coffee shop, which was, I think, opened in 1881, about the time when the streets of the Ginza area, for example, were illuminated. There were lights in the street brought a kind of middle-class nightlife to Tokyo, particularly, and Yokohama, apparently. So there were these places where people went, strolled around as kind of flaneur and boulevardier, people who would gain the night and even women would appear in these night spaces. But cafes, uh, to go back to the first cafe, attracted a range of people who might not ever have talked to each other before in this new kind of social space. 
the first cafe was created by a young man born in Nagasaki to a Chinese foreign service translator and was thought by his father, I think it was actually his adoptive father, to need a foreign education to get ahead in Japan, seeing as how he was of Chinese ancestry. His name transliterated from Chinese into Japanese was always used as Tei Eike. Tei Eike was sent to Yale University in New Haven to gain this extra cachet. But Tei Eike was not very studious. In fact, he was so attracted to the coffee houses of New York City that he spent rather little time at Yale and flunked out. His father, disgusted with him, said, well, we're going to make something of you one way or another, and sent him back to Japan by way of Europe. He said, get some culture. So Teike arrived in London, kind of at the end of the coffeehouse epoch of London history, but where the coffeehouses were still rather grand places, very masculine places, places where men of a certain class, merchant class mostly, would come and sit for hours and have all kinds of elegant amenities, uh, stuffed leather armchairs and newspapers on racks and all kinds of things that weren't in other kinds of social spaces, but might have been in the clubs of the elite. So these coffee houses in London attracted TAK, just like their New York equivalents. And he came back to Japan and said, that's what I want. I want a new kind of social space. I want to help Japan's democratic modernity to help people gather who wouldn't know each other just the way they had for him in New York and London. He romanticized these spaces. And he made his own coffee shop, which was called Kahi Chakan. Sometimes it was called Kahi Kan. So using the word for coffee, kahi, of the time, it's now kohi, and using a character for tea, actually, cha, in the middle. So it looked like a European place, but it had reference in some ways to the old tea houses, the chaya in Japan. But of course, it served no tea whatsoever. A person could stay all day for the price of, you know, one cup of coffee, which was, I think it was one sen, a unit that's no longer used, and basically use up the amenities without really uh, benefiting the establishment. Well, Teike himself thought of, you know, thought of it more in the terms of a consumer rather than a businessman, and he went broke. His place even had showers napping rooms, all sorts of things that you could stay all day and enjoy. But having gone broke, he fell into a depression and a friend found him on the verge of suicide and sent him to Seattle. Now that that becomes kind of interesting because Seattle, of course, was a depot in the late 19th, early 20th century for shipping of coffee from Latin America. He was found in a dry goods shop and he did have some connection with selling coffee beans, but he wasn't good at that either. 
died uh, in his late 30s in Seattle, and his gravesite is much visited by Japanese coffee industrialists and other fans of this whole history of coffee in Japan in the Lakeview Cemetery in Seattle. So there's quite a funny circular connection between America and Japan's coffee shops. But that social space went on to flourish, even if Tay A.K.'s Kahikan did not. Although there is, on the very site of his old coffee shop, a uh, monument to him with a very old photograph etched into it commemorating Japan's first real coffee shop. You mentioned that multiple waves of coffee shops and this older kind of older style of coffee shop, kisaten kind of coffee shop, you know, even though it's called Tea House, serves coffee. Kohikan, I, I think, is still around, at least as a name of a coffee shop. But could you talk about what are these three waves of coffee in Japan? Well, the the idea of the three waves is not a Japanese idea. It was created by a woman coffee expert named Trish Rothgeb, an American. And Trish decided that there have been these very marked stages in uh, connoisseurship or just plain uh, consumption of coffee, uh, especially in America. And so the first, of course, is the old, you know, boil the beans um, keep it in an urn all day, um, you know, not particularly very um, thoughtful or obsessive, we would now say. But that was just like, this is what you have. You just have coffee. You don't think about it. It's like an invisible thing that just reappears. The slightly more conscious stages uh, were really about the same time that instant coffee became popular in the 40s, well, in the 50s, really, at the same time that people were really burying the idea of subtlety and taste, that there was also a move to, you know, let's think about this. Let's use something that was called the Chemex with the paper filters, which was kind of what you did if you wanted not to drink instant coffee and how you could show your your newly developed connoisseurship. But you were still using coffee out of vacuum cans like Maxwell House or other coffees. So the coffee itself hadn't changed, but there was the interest in the fresh coffee, the coffee from real coffee grounds. Some people had begun to roast coffee at home, which was usually a disaster. But then came along the idea of origin. And this is where you get the third wave, which is thinking about where the beans come from. In a sense, they're terroir. And this is where Starbucks had a big initiative in giving us names for points of origin, an image of some tropical territory First of all, the acknowledgement that coffee was from somewhere else. And coffee has to grow within 25 degrees north and south of the equator. And mostly it is drunk in countries that do not produce it. Brazil is the big exception. Brazil is a high consuming and producing country. So you get these people now thinking, oh, this is an adventure. This is a geographical pursuit, drinking coffee. And being able to order coffee from 
Ethiopia and say, I want the Irgachev. And that idea of a geographical knowledge came into the third wave of coffee. The 3.5, which Trish Rothgeb did not call it, but people are now calling 3.5 wave, is the effect actually of Japan. A lot of kinds of coffee now that are in specialty coffee houses all over the world, and I mean Australia and London and even Paris, where you never thought they would care that much about the coffee itself, only the cafe. There are places now which use Japanese coffee technologies, the Kalita Company and the Hario Company, as I said before. There are places where the pour-over or hand-pour coffee, which is, I would say, the most developed Japanese coffee style and very particular to Japan, is used, often without actually realizing it is Japanese because it has become so assimilated everywhere in the world. But if you go to an old school coffee shop in Japan, and by old school, I mean 1930s to to the early post-war years, you won't find espresso. And that's because that is seen as too technological, too not handmade, whereas a hand pour is about the hand and a skill that cannot be exhibited through a marzocco machine, for example. There is this kind of transplanting of this third wave idea. Maybe we could say three generations of coffee shops in Japan, too. You have these these older Kisaten, like there's one in northern Shibuya where you're not even allowed to talk. It says, you know, you come in, you read your book, you drink your coffee, and you don't have any conversations, and they'll actually tell you to be quiet. Then we have the second wave of kind of the, the stores, Starbucks, Dotor, Excelsior, and now maybe a, a kind of hipster third wave where it's more the artisanal cafes? Um, I think that what's happening now is about a single person, the barista, who would be called the master, the master's own passion for coffee, that personal expression, which was also in many kisaten, where the man behind the counter gives the flavor, gives the literal flavor to the coffee and the establishment. I think now, though, that usually much younger person, is, you know, kind of somebody who did not want to follow in his, usually his, father's soldery man footsteps, but wanted to do something very creative and very personal instead of becoming a faceless cog in a corporate uh, workplace. So I think now you're seeing these, you know, the artisanal, as you say, coffee, the tezukuri, handmade coffee. But it's also going in a new direction to, in fact, the espresso. There is one coffee shop that really epitomizes both the personal and the machine. And that is Bear Pond in Shimokitazawa in Tokyo. And this one man who will make you your espresso shot and then take maybe 15 minutes between shots to take apart the machine, steam clean it, rethread all the screws and put it back together again before he will make the second shot. He maybe can make 20 shots a day 
because of this painstaking approach. That, he says, makes this espresso machine into an extension of his hand, and thus it is handmade. But obviously the chain stores use espresso machines in a much more efficient way, less artisanally. So you get a range of things happening. You also get a certain amount of nostalgia for the old Kisaten, the brown or sepia cafe, sepia-colored cafe, where one man again will express the feeling of the cafe, where you are mostly silent unless you're chatting with the barman himself, and you're certainly not bringing in a laptop. You do not find laptops in the specialty coffee houses in Japan. You're not encouraged to um, sit forever with a laptop. You certainly could sit forever with the newspaper or even those thick, heavy weekly manga books. But the idea of a laptop is anathema to many of these older places and the new specialty connoisseur coffee shops. When I was in Japan as a dissertation student and just when I go there regularly, of course, I spend a lot of time in coffee shops. And so I was would think, you know, you could really learn some interesting observations about Japanese society through the coffee shop. So I'm curious for you as an anthropologist writing about coffee in Japan, what are some of those observations you've made or, or what is the view of Japanese society you get from the coffee shop? I think uh, the question of what happened what you see from the seat of a cafe about a country is is really, you know, of course you have to keep modifying your view by and testing it against other information. But yeah, when I, like you, first went to Japan, which was in 1963, much before you actually, um, <laughs> I, I, um, I, I realized that the Japan I was seeing in 1963 was rapidly changing. And the coffee shop was a testing ground then for new ideas, much as it had been in Meiji and Taisho. We were still in the post-war in 1963. And novelties were coming to Japan through coffee houses as they had been before. For instance, gallery art was being displayed in coffee houses uh, that wouldn't have been seen yet in museums. So, I was looking at a kind of avant-garde Japan in 1963 through the coffee house. The other thing I was beginning to notice by the 70s when I came back to do fieldwork was that responding to the new middle class of Japan that was employed in large corporations that had developed the salaryman culture that we all read about in Ezra Vogel's New Middle Class book, the idea of a space that would be a kind of antidote or timeout or respite from the pressures of corporate life, that imbued the coffeehouse of the 70s. So in responding to society's needs, the coffeehouses kept changing. Also, you saw a lot of, by the 1990s, you saw the coffee house reflecting a new kind of employment pattern. For example, you saw frita, freelance workers or part-time workers, using coffee houses as uh, little offices, not with laptops, but using all kinds of spaces to do some writing, some reading. They were places where people who didn't have an office could go. 
women were using coffee houses for all kinds of reasons too, in ways that reflected their changing status and changing employment patterns. But some interesting things kept happening. You know, in Japan, it's terribly important to be on time to a meeting. And a coffee house represented a place for time management. And so by the uh, early, well, 2000s, I was noticing people trying to get to a meeting in time by using a coffee house as a time gauge place. You came early, had 15, 20 minutes to spend so that you would arrive cool and calm and collected at the meeting without looking like you just rushed from the train by staying in a coffee shop nearby. And there were, of course, three or four coffee shops on every block. So there was never a gap that couldn't be filled by a coffee house. You were talking about Bear Pond Espresso and the obsessive detail, you could say, almost that this barista goes into in preparing each cup of coffee. And there's this kind of specialization of coffee in Japan where if you want a nail drip, you can go to this cafe. If you want a siphon drip, you can go to this cafe. If you want Chemex, you know, whatever. But, you know, you'd say these styles have kind of fallen out of fashion elsewhere. Why do you think it is that they're still so popular in Japan? It's very interesting to see the diversity of styles of coffee in Japan because they each reflect a specific market. Older people might remember their youth by going to a siphon coffee shop. But siphon is interesting to young people too, who may not always just want to go to a Starbucks. So there's a whole bunch of different factors in the choice. But what I think is important is the capacity to have a choice in what kind of coffee you have. One day you might want a can of coffee from a Jido Hambaiki, from a vending machine on the station platform, because you're on your way somewhere and it's hot and you want a cold coffee. The same person, though, might later that day go to a specialty coffee house to have the most amazing and very expensive hand-pour coffee. So you have your choices of kinds of coffee to have. And I think that enlivens the life of a coffee connoisseur. And you might also be drinking instant coffee at home, the same, the very same person. But I think that the idea of the old style coffee house might have a nostalgic ring for the older people. And where, by the way, many older people congregate because the uh, aging population in Japan is looking for spaces of sociality too. But these old kisaten are the object of borrowed nostalgia for young people too. So young people go to them and kind of reflect on the past and have a quiet moment that isn't always geared to their smartphone. I was wondering, we talked about Bear Pond, and maybe we shouldn't advertise too much, but do you have particular stores that you like in Japan? Uh, and maybe rather than individual names, when you go to a coffee shop, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that you enjoy in these coffee shops? You know, for me, the choice of a coffee shop on a given day, and often I go to three or four a day, um, because I'm so committed to this, is dependent on where I am, what my mood is, whether there's a particular coffee master I want to talk to. And so, for example, there are a rising number of young couples in Japan opening coffee shops as a kind of dream occupation where they can work together. It's almost a romantic fantasy, but it works. Um, so I know several of these uh, in Tokyo and Kyoto where I, I frequent it. They have a lovely mood. 
And uh, sometimes I'll go to a coffee shop because I really don't want to talk to anybody. So in that case, I'm going to choose a coffee shop that I don't frequent where I'm not known. And Japanese people do that as well, um, having a variety of places. Those coffee shops that are holes in the wall, you know, where nobody knows your name instead of where everybody knows your name are also valuable locations. I think that the use of coffee houses for many different purposes by the same person is uh, a key to the success of the variety of coffee shops. And I totally understand what you mean about you have a, a series of them that you go to depending on your mood. And so often it, you know, in the previous years, it was depending on whether you wanted to smell like smoke for the rest of the day, too. But it seems like now in Tokyo, those are starting to disappear where you can actually smoke inside the coffee shop. <laughs> Um, well, I have been going to coffee shops so long in Japan that the smell of cigarettes in coffee shops is almost nostalgic for me, though I don't smoke myself. Hmm. And um, so one one Japanese gentleman said to me, I miss the old coffee shop that smelled of stale cigarettes and smelly socks. <laughs> and, this, you know, on a wet day, people taking off their shoes and the socks smell, you know, that. There is something about the smoking in coffee shops that also said to me sophistication in the early 60s, because I was quite young and smoking was seemed to be sophisticated. But I think that now the use of coffee shops by increasing numbers of women of all ages, among whom smoking is not so popular, and the uh, use of coffee shops by many people who just don't smoke, means that that's a an important reason to go to a place if it doesn't have smoking. The use of the nostalgia factor doesn't always include cigarettes. It also includes music. And the music that's played in cafes was very important from the Taisho period on, when both uh, recordings of classical music and jazz music were calling cards for coffee house uh, connoisseurs. So I think that's another aspect to the cafe that might seem nostalgic to some people, but is an active presence for many people. I'm a total convert to the, the Hario pour-over. I, I ground my beans this morning with a, a Hario conical burr grinder, poured it into a, the Hario V60 pour-over uh, using a Hario thing. I even make a Hario cold brew. <laughs> yeah, no, it's coffee. Uh, that's one of the things I picked up from being in Japan so long was just coffee. And there was even, when I, I was living in Shinagawa area and, and up in Takanawadai, yeah. there is... There's a coffee roaster named Sai, where oh, sure. it's a, it's just a green bean store where you walk in and, and you pick out the green beans right. you and want. They and they roast them and them. you come back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, there's one in Yanaka that I go to a lot. Hmm. Um, and there's several in Kyoto. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, this idea of personalizing your choice is what that's about, too. You're not just taking something and running. You're making a considered choice, which I think people enjoy, too. And a friend of mine even runs a coffee shop in Japan called Paddler's. I should put a shout out to him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's the most you ever paid for a coffee in Tokyo? About 2,200 yen. Oh, wow, 2,200. Yeah. yeah. Was this a Jamaican Blue Mountain? 
Uh, no, I, I, it was at a place in Shinjuku called Ban. And it's one of those places where you choose a fancy cup. Mm. Uh, you don't take the cup home with you, of course, but you, um, and it was ridiculously expensive. So it's not a place I go back to much. I had one. So in Gotanda, there's a place down in the basement that does a nail drip coffee, which you really don't see around too much anymore. Oh, yeah, you do in Kyoto, that flannel bag. Okay. Yeah. I, I picked out a, it was a Ethiopian, but it was aged. Oh, wait, you're not talking about Cafe Doramburu. Are you? Because they do that at Doramburu, in, uh, but that's in Shimbashi. Okay, yeah. Now this was in Gotanda, but I, I never had, okay. I'd never had aged coffee before. Yeah. Well, the guy who started that is named Sekiguchi. Hmm. He is 105 this year, hmm. and he owns this very, very old coffee shop called Dolambara or Doramburu. And it's very, very, very famous. And he ages beans. You can't age roasted beans. You can only age green beans. I see. But he will accept a phone call the day before, and you say you want a Yemen 93, you know, 1993. And he will roast the amount you will need for the coffee you're going to come and drink the next day. (laughs) Uh, Because if you drink coffee right out of the roaster. It needs 24 hours at least. And then he makes it in the nail bag only. Hmm. So this guy, your your Gotanda person, might have trained with uh, Sekiguchi. I can't let you go until you tell us about your own coffee preparation techniques. What do you use? Don't tell us you use like instant freezer dried crystals or something. (laughs) You know, well, I only use a V60 and I use a burr grinder. I mean, this is only when I'm at home, of course, but actually at my office at the university, I have a burr grinder and I can't control the temperature of the water very well, but I have a V60 there as well. And I only grind the coffee after the water has, the boiling has turned off. Hmm. So I'm really stupidly fussy. (laughs) And I think I've just made myself ridiculous, but I do a pour over. Mm-hmm. I do have one of those pinch spout Hario pouring kettles. Right. It's crazy. And I get beans from local roasters who are my friends. And I drink coffee out a lot, maybe once or twice a day here. I go to coffee shops, but only if teaching schedule permits it. But my first cup of coffee better be good. <laughs> Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.